0: I'm Kate Northrup.
1: And I'm Mike Watts. And we're partners in life, love, and business.
0: Welcome to the Kate and Mike Show, where we share insights and interviews on entrepreneurship, relationships, parenting, self-actualization, and making a life, not just a living. Hi, welcome to the Kate and Mike Show. This is Kate. And this is Mike. We, well, first of all, Happy New Year. Or, well, actually... This episode is coming out on the last day of the year. Happy day. Happy day. Happy transition between the old year and the new year. If you're listening to this in 2020, welcome to the new year.
1: Kate, what are you most excited about thus far in 2020?
0: Well, we're recording this ahead of time, so I don't know. But now, today, when we're actually recording this, I am so excited about those radical choices we've been making in our year-end review and annual planning process to create more space and stay devoted to the things that matter. We've reached a whole other level of that, and I'm pretty pumped about what's coming down the pipeline. How about you, honey?
1: I'm excited for my winter tires that are getting put on right now for my bike.
0: Yes. And then
1: I'm also I'm excited for what you said as well. And then I'm also excited for our trip to Miami that happens tomorrow. But we will be back for it by when the time this episode this comes, comes
0: out. <laughs> out, we will already have gone come back from Miami. But this will be our one and only trip, just the two of us this year that has nothing to do with business. So yeah. that's really exciting. That is our Christmas gift to each other. So I'm also really excited for this episode because I have to tell you, the book that this person, this guest wrote is one of the most radical books I have read in a very long time. like for it sure. touched me on like a very deep level. So, we have for you today an episode about the radical choice to not drink in a culture obsessed with alcohol, which if you didn't know is our culture. And Holly Whitaker It's the world. It's really it's 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 the world. Yeah. Holly Whitaker wrote this incredible book called Quit Like a Woman. And she is a sobriety coach and teacher, writer, speaker, and she is a kundalini yoga and meditation instructor. She is the founder of Tempest Sobriety School and The Temper, which is her online platform about sobriety. And she is the head of a giant tech startup. I mean, I don't know if it's giant, but it's impressive. And this is this online sobriety school. She is a very funny woman. She's (laughs) impressive. In 2012, she found herself living the life that she had dreamed of. Uh, She lived in a big city, brunched on Sundays, had a small army of friends, and her social calendar was full. She wore the right clothes, had the right apartment, maintained the right waistline, and was at the height of her career, a director at a hot San Francisco health tech startup. And so by all accounts, she should have... Made it, except she hadn't because the entire thing was a total show. Behind the scenes, her life was spinning out of control. She was severely unhappy, desperately insecure, depressed, and anxious, and becoming less and less able to manage the life that she was supposed to. Also, she was bulimic, addicted to alcohol, pot, and cigarettes. And basically in 2012, she hit what most would call her rock bottom, which we talk about in the episode and her book, certainly talks about as well. But what was so powerful about her story is that everybody told her, well, you just have to go to AA. You just have to go to a meeting. And for her, the 12 steps in AA really weren't for her, but she still managed to successfully get sober and create this beautiful life and business. And that's basically how Her whole journey began because she charted her own individualized path of recovery that helped her not only kick her alcohol, cigarette pot, and food addiction, it has given her a life beyond what she could have
1: dreamed. So the podcast today, we talk about her story that you just shared. We talk about her book and what dives into And I would say we, you know, I shared my journey with alcohol, tobacco, cigarettes, the whole shebang you know, earlier in 2019,
0: which was our most downloaded episode of 2019.
1: Yeah. And so, which is why we're talking about this again. Right. And everyone's story is a little bit different. The substances are there. The biggest thing I take away from her book is that especially with alcohol, I would highly recommend anybody to read this. Like it's just really good, but it talks about with, especially in the world of alcohol, that the problem is us. And not necessarily, but then everything else that people have an issue with, let's take opioids or something like that. The problem is the product, right? The way the product's marketed and et cetera. And a lot of, and so when it comes to the way that the society looks at alcohol, that were the issue. We have, and yes, there is. No, they
0: say, society looks at it as everyone should be able to drink moderately and that's a healthy, that's some part of being a healthy adult. And if you can't, there's something wrong with you. But nobody says that about Coke, opioids, or any other drug out there, which actually alcohol is responsible for more deaths collectively than every other drug. But we think about it completely differently.
1: So we dive into this in more depth during this episode. So I just listen. It's a great episode.
0: This could absolutely change your life. And Holly and her team at The Tempest say, we believe sobriety is our invitation to the life we're supposed to be living. So whether you think you have a drinking problem, whether you don't think you have a drinking problem, whether you used to, whether you have a family member who does, or whether you're a non-drinker like me, this episode is an invitation to live awake and we hope you'll take it. Enjoy.
2: Welcome, Holly. Thank you for having me. Oh my God, I'm so excited to be here. Oh,
1: so we forgot excited. to tell you, we do the intros.
2: Yeah, we'll, we'll,
1: we'll record it after. We'll do the cool. for real intro. Also, so we're in it.
0: We didn't tell you this ahead of time, but we never publish our video. We just like to keep it on so we can see your beautiful face. Yeah,
2: I, I, love, that. Like I totally love that. I totally love that. Nowhere, okay.
1: <laughs> okay. In Dropbox, <laughs> it will. It's only in Dropbox.
2: <laughs> okay,
0: well, okay. So I just want to start by saying, I don't know if you're present to this or not, but this book that you've written, "Quit Like a Woman," is an incredibly courageous book. I have read a lot of things that are you know, sort of outside the mainstream. But this one challenges something that is so deeply held as true by basically everyone. It's not, it's a very political book, but this isn't, this is not a bipartisan issue. Like everybody assumes that drinking is normal and everyone should be able to drink. And the fact that you are challenging that fundamental belief about being an adult human is so revolutionary. And I just want to say, like, congratulations for having that level of courage.
2: I think it's like that. I think it's a level of of stupidity or foolishness sometimes because I don't think I actually, I think I'm so used to it and talking like this. I mean, years ago, I was, I remember the first time I told one of my friends that I thought, no one should drink. He got so... It was like this revelation. We were in Sicily. He was having a glass of wine. And I was like... I showed him my secret blog and he said that. And I just remember him being so flustered at that and saying, I wouldn't share that with many people if I were you. And I think that I have been insulated by this recovery world. And I think that has given me almost a... I mean, I just don't think I get how much it is... I don't think I get how much it's lying outside the mainstream, because to me, it's pretty mainstream as at this point.
0: Yeah, it's totally not.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But I think it's really wise of you
0: to stay more insulated so that you can keep that volume strong, because I do think it's important for us to be able to do brave things while we feel safe. Yeah, Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, I just literally have not had a conversation since reading your book that I have not
2: brought it up in. Well, I mean, you're sober, right? Both of you don't drink.
0: Yeah, I would say I'm a non-drinker.
1: Kate Kate drinks like-
0: I might have a glass of champagne every three years. Okay. a sip. A J-Lo. A sip of champagne every three years. I don't drink at all. But Mike is- is,
1: I have kombucha.
2: Okay. Do you count kombucha Besides, what where are you on kombucha? Uh I've had I've had some pretty intoxicating kombucha and I had mm. st- I had to stop drinking it cuz it freaked me out. Um Pre- it was yeah, I, a one time in a wine glass and it had yeah. a high level of alcohol and I was like, "Whoa, this is like wine." And so sometimes I'll have the GT's clear one, but the one that you don't have to use an ID for. I
1: just I it is something that I have noticed that it does affect. It it gives me the same type of thing. Like I'll have a half a glass and it's something it's like when, when I'm eating with food yeah, you know, and and because it does, it does give me a buzz. And I yeah. always told Kate this and she's like, I don't get that. You know, she's like, she doesn't get, it doesn't affect her. Yeah. As, at, like it does for me, but it yeah. just triggers that it's like eating too much sugar honestly, yeah. the same thing. Like if I have a bunch of cake, it triggers the same recept, whatever those things are. But yeah, no, I, st- I stopped officially. Like I would say else, anything outside kombucha uh, 2013. Is that? Yeah. Yeah.
0: What was so cool about reading your story, which I'm going to have you tell, you know, the version of it that you feel like telling today um, in a minute is that similarly you and Mike did not go through recovery in the way that our culture holds as the only way to go through recovery. And, and so I would love to hear About that. So do you mind telling the version of your story that you feel like telling today about getting sober?
2: I mean, you've, you, do you ever feel sometimes like you tell your story so many times you can't remember if you're telling the story of the story or if you're telling the story? Yes, I can tell it. I just got I was just on a, I was just on a call with the New York post and I was just like, what is the, I don't know. Anyway. So my story is I had, I was really messed up and I had an eating disorder for years. I mean, I had, Pretty typical trauma growing up. My parents got divorced, my dad is gay, my mom went back to work, I was, you know, I just, I kind of to a degree raised myself, my family kind of split at the most pivotal point in my life when I was 14. My dad being gay threw me into a lot of turmoil of questioning my own sexual identity that lasted for years. I had a deeply unhealthy relationship with food from a very young age. I had eating disorders that I, you know, plagued me forever. I started smoking pot and cigarettes and drinking at a really young age as a coping mechanism. And I just never grew out of it. And by the time I was, I mean, I always felt, and I write about this in the book, I always felt like I was just waiting to grow up or I was just waiting for, my life to start, I was just waiting to stop running. And I feel like my life up into getting sober was trying to outrun my credit card debt, trying to outrun my trauma, trying to outrun my terrible relationship with men and just like keep trying to keep it all together in a way that I still don't keep it. I mean, I still have my, you know, to say that I now have it all together is a total lie, but it's not exploding and imploding. I'm not broken in the way that I was broken and just, just, I'm not surviving anymore in a different mode of being and that is because I never learned how to take care of myself and it was either it was either keep doing what I was doing which was using alcohol and pot and I mean and everything that was available to me to keep myself taped together or it was and die you know and that was it that was what I was looking at was if I keep going this way, I am only, I was like 32, I guess, like 31, 32. If I keep going this way, I'm going to die from this. This is going to kill me. And it was, it was either do that or address something. And my way in was not saying, Oh my God, I have an alcoholism problem. I was starting to get hip to that. But the biggest way in for me was I actually, I was surrounded by medical doctors and healthcare professionals. I worked you know, at a healthcare startup. And my way in was babysitting for my friend's kids one night. And he was a doctor and he said, he thought this one guy we knew had borderline, he didn't even say borderline personality disorder, but he said, it's like borderline personality disorder. And the second he said that, I thought, oh my God, that's it. It just hit. And I don't know why it hit. I think it hit in the way that sometimes we just can't explain the way something enters. And I ended up researching it. It was so clear that that was what I had. And I was later not diagnosed as borderline. I was diagnosed as somebody with addiction. But to me, that was such a pivotal thing was when I found out that that was what, when I, I was like eight out of nine on this quiz for like borderline personality disorder. And when I took that quiz and it said, you are messed up in this way. I was so relieved that it was not alcoholism, if that makes sense. It was just like, oh, I can deal with this. This is a mental health issue. This is not addiction and addiction is death sentence. And I think from there, that was the thing that allowed me to find. And one of the things that was so clear was that if you have borderline personality disorder, you cannot drink, it will make you worse. And so that was enough too, to help me to say, well, maybe I should look at my, you know, relationship with alcohol. And then that took me to another book that was like a miracle. It was called the easy way to control alcohol. And I only bought it because it was literally called the easy way to control alcohol. So I was like, here's an E and people raved about it on Amazon even, and they were just like, this book saved my life. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to learn how to become a, you know, a moderate drinker and I'm going to control my alcohol easily. And then the book just like totally pulls the whole facade off the off the drinking thing, and all of a sudden, for me, it was just like, this is so pointless. i this is such a pointless thing to do with our time, and I don't have to do that anymore. And that for me was it was not my recovery, but that was the thing that allowed me to I think like having that revelation that alcohol is not something i had tried to make it work because i thought i was supposed to make it work that there was no other way out and this was like this other way out i hadn't even considered which was oh my god i don't have to deal with all of this stuff anymore i can actually have a life back where i'm not contending with hangovers and bloat and i had i was getting i mean i used to get like photo facials because i had broken blood vessels on my face from drinking and I was just like none. I can get rid of all this stuff, and and that was it. And it it wasn't it, but that was you know the. I think the thing that allowed me to look at drinking in a way, and I didn't want to go to AA because for many reasons. And I think by the time I ended up going to AA and trying it, I had exposed myself to such different thought systems. It felt very weird to me to go to sit in a room and hear people come, like people talk about losing their drinking privilege, or people talk about how sad it was. Because I was like, "This is the best thing that's ever happened to me." It was just a very fundamentally different thing, and I think one of the things that penetrated me at that time in in the early stages of trying to bring together hip sobriety and now Tempest was I was like, if people like I I need to find people before they go to AA, otherwise AA is going to tell them this one thing. And I think that's freeing to understand this other thing. So in the early like ideas of what I was trying to do, it was to stop people from going to AA, which is no longer my thing. I don't think I need to do that. But there was a very desperate thing of like being so, I would talk to people through that, relationship. And I would realize, Oh, you think this is sad. This is great. Like this is, it's horrible and hard and all those things, but like, we don't have to do that anymore. Isn't that great. And, and why, and like relapse and all of those things. It was just like, you know, like these, it was a very different, I feel extreme gratitude to it because I don't think I could have done it in the other way. I really don't. I mean, I think I probably could have, but I just, it happened how I think it really had to happen for me. Amazing. So
0: what do you see as, like, why is AA problematic
1: for you?
2: I think in the early days, I would (laughs) have, and others. We're talking about
1: Alcoholics Uh, Anonymous here. Yes. Correct. I'm just clarifying this for everyone listening who might not know.
2: I think it's, I think I want to be clear that I don't think AA is problematic. I'm not running around saying, holy, you know, can I say holy crap?
0: You can say whatever you want.
2: Great. I'm not running around saying, holy crap, people don't go to AA. This is the devil's work, you know, or like, watch out for that organization. It's a cult. I think that at one point, what I'm trying to say, at one point I definitely felt that way. I felt it was a dangerous organization. And I don't feel that way anymore I also have a lot more reverence and respect for Bill W and the founders of AA and Bill W specifically if you dig into his history he was a very good man trying to do very radical things for the time yeah. and so and you you just have to love people that want to help people and he was a human that wanted to help people but he was deeply flawed all the things is great and like I think what has come of this for me is understanding you know it's understanding the sy- like the system and what's broken in the system and i think the thing that is broken in the system of recovery is it is by design made for men and it's made to break down white male privilege and it's remained the same and locked in a philosophy for, you know, almost, you know, for 80 something years. And it is something that I think like all things that are born of a patriarchal structure, ignore the realities of what it means to not have power, to be the oppressed to to be somebody, you know, and I, I think I can get deeply into this, but I think for the most part, there's a lot of things that are specific to recovery when you're looking at individuals that come into it without a sense of self, without, you know, feeling like they belong in the world and let alone own the world. And I think when you're talking about what those individuals need, you know, women, people of color, LGBTQIA, I mean, anybody in the margins of society, or anybody that's second to or third to or fourth to, when you're thinking about what those humans need, it's not to be told to shut up, listen, do this thing, work this program, don't question it, don't trust yourself, uh, humble yourself, go and apologize to everybody, you know, get smaller, get right sized, know you're not God. I mean, that's like. You know, I talk about this at length in the book. Those are instructions, that, those are feminizing instructions. Those are instructions on how to be a woman. And I think that that was something that was very radical and is still very radical to those that sit at the top of the power structure. Like the renunciation, to have something to renounce, to humble yourself when you never have or to, you know, to do these things that you have never done, to have the privilege to deny such things that is, right, the, like the path of mysticism or the path of Buddhism or the path of, you know, ascetism, like it's, it's all of, it is the renunciation of male privilege because every single lineage of, of, you know, every single religious lineage, you know, in the history of the last few thousand years has been essentially designed to break down male privilege. And, (laughs) But when you put women or anybody that hasn't held that power into those situations, I think for me, it has been largely a building up and an, a claiming of that power and almost a fe- like, you know, a claiming of my feminism. And then from there, I now can work on, you know, maybe arrogance or narcissism or. Or, you know, now that I have some of these things, I think that is, now that I have some of these things to renounce because I've created a a distinct self or I've claimed my space or whatnot, I think that we need to build people up. I think breaking people down is, yeah, I could go on. So anyway, yeah.
1: Yes. So just so I'm, because I've never been to an AA meeting and I'm not sure you know, for listeners that have never been to one either. Can you talk about this piece of, so in these meetings they're breaking you down to try to break you up or how does, cause you mentioned that term. So I'm just, I would like more onto that.
2: Yeah, and I think it's the core literature. In meetings that I've been to, I've never felt like specifically like I'm being broken down. I don't think it's like, I think that that is an exaggeration of of the program. I think it's far more what's written into the program and the ideas of the program and then how the fellowship sometimes acts that out on each other. So for instance, you know, being followed outside of a meeting, if I, you know, I attended a few meetings, like probably, I don't know, 10 in a row when I was first getting sober and I started getting followed outside and told, I see you here, you need to find a sponsor. And I didn't want to find a sponsor. I was just going to meetings or it was being told if I didn't come back that I was going to drink again. It was... I think the, I mean, it's the, the literature that is developed of it. It's the 12 steps and what the 12 steps essentially spell out. The issue that I have with it is not that you go to a meeting and you have all these people beating you up and making you smaller. It's the rhetoric of it that lives on. I went and heard a, you know, a teacher of mine and I, I think a friend of yours, we were recently at one of her things. She spoke at an event she's sober and she's, I know she got sober through the 12 steps and she spoke at a recovery event years ago. And I write about this in the book and she was talking forever about how we needed to get more hump, like how all the women in the room it was like 500 women in a room. They're all newly recovered and how humility is our way out. And it was just this, like it was this thing and it was in 2016 and it was a group of women that were broken and were rebuilding themselves And the keynote was on humility and how we needed to get more of it. And I was just astonished. And that is far more what I'm critical of, which is the way that we carry the rhetoric and we beat each other up with it. Mm. And we use it as the answer to everything. You're having a problem, get more humble, watch your ego, forgive more, you know, apologize more, get smaller it is far more how that tends to be weaponized against us in these like smaller interactions that we have or even the work of the steps and, you know, or even the fact that like we're often given the steps and told if we don't agree with them to work with them. Like, to, it's, it's just far larger, a bit of like, just make this thing work that was created 80 years ago, mm. make it work. And like that to me has always been the crux of it, which is why are we trying to make something work that was made for men. Why, why when in every other arena now, when we're so keen to or so aware of all the ways that we have to like work around in a world made for men, like why are we sitting here trying to make this thing work that was made for men when you can see all of its effects kind of littered around the place in all of these different people's experiences. If you look closely, you you know, anyway, I feel like I'm just like going off. Course. No, it's
0: it's so important and you talked about the other thing that you know I was on a walk with a girlfriend the other week and I shared this with her and I'd love for you to talk about it And her mind like she almost dropped on the sidewalk which is basically like the binary between in our culture you either are a normal healthy adult who can drink alcohol like a normal person in a healthy way or you're an alcoholic. Yeah. Like those are your two choices. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about why that's not doing any of us any favors? Cause that's the part that was just like, I had never a, I don't fit into either of those categories, but I just sort of was like, well, I'm just weird. Yeah. I can see why that is so dangerous as a culture. So
2: can you talk about that Yeah, I mean, I think it is. It's the only drug where there's a binary like that, right? Like there's not normal smokers and cigarette there's not normal cocaine users, no more normal heroin users. And actually, if you look at the history of drug use before the war on drugs, if you actually go back and you understand, like alcohol is a ceremonial drug, all drugs were ceremonial drugs at one point that had a root in some sort of ceremony, some sort of cultural history that have then been eradicated by a very racist war on drugs. And by that, I just mean the war on drugs started in the United States. Oftentimes, in the earliest instances of it, it was meant to, like, for instance, Chinese immigrants were prevented from smoking opium, but white people could. And so it was an originally like meant to police culture to it was a, a, a very specific racist tool. Peyote is another example, ganja is another example, ganja, ganja being stripped out of Indian culture, and in all this, and I talk about this in the book in India you know, have a proliferation of alcohol. And so when you look at like the history of the war on drugs, you see this thing where around the world, all of this like cultural and ceremonial drug use is wiped out and often backed by U S government. And then it was replaced with alcohol. And so we have, I think, writ large, one non-illicit drug and or one licit drug, then we have the rest is all illicit. And so we don't even, you know, like at different levels of time, like opium, ganja, all of these things, you know, I mean, drug use has been around since human civilizations and alcohol is one of the oldest drugs because it's just a naturally occurring drug that happens when, you know, sugar ferments. So the whole point of it is saying that I think, one of the things that has out, has grown out of post-prohibition and the way that we started to consume during prohibition and then also the fact that it's the one legal drug is is simply that we venerate it, we look at it as if it's not a problem and it's also been sold to us as if it isn't a problem. This is this normal thing that we do and we used to think about that, about like tobacco and it's kind of one of these, I think it's to a degree one of these things is just an outgrowth of a normal a, a number of things which is a, you know, the war on drugs that has allowed us to basically keep one one drug, um, and then also grown out of, we like to get messed up. I mean, it's just it's a protected substance. It's also a substance that operates basically above the law. Alcohol kills three point three million people in the you know worldwide a year, and the alcohol industry is absolutely not on the hook for those deaths. And conversely, jewels or vaping recently killed maybe less than a hundred people. And all of a sudden, right, the CEO is getting let go and we're outlying flavored jewel pods and the government steps in because we have a really clear idea about tobacco and about vaping. And the same thing can be seen when you look at opioids and big pharma, big pharma was immediately sued. and. This is, you know, and, and, and the number of deaths again, like there's, I think there's like 500,000 deaths worldwide from all other drugs and 3.3 million. It's like six times as many deaths per year. Related to alcohol. So anyway, the whole point is there's just, there's cultural skew. There's like the, the, the skew from the fact that it's been policed and um, that's a, you yeah, so it's a, it's a white drug that's basically pushed and it's a profitable drug. I mean, there's all sorts of different things and I don't even remember the original thing you were asking, but I think okay, for the most right. part, <laughs> we are looking at this thing where it's protected and we have instead turned our focus to those people that we say can't use it correctly. And this is something I talk about in the book too, which is it's also a part of the agenda of the alcohol industry. Alcohol industry uses this, they push and they supplement and they are are like forcing this tagline of drink responsibly. Coors, Anheuser-Busch, like Alcohol companies are constantly pushing this idea. It's been around since I can remember, drive responsibly, don't drink and drive. But this idea of drink responsibly pushes this idea that drinking responsibly is even a thing and that it's not the substance's fault. It is your your fault. And so when it comes to alcohol, it's this thing where it's constantly pushed this belief that It is not the drug's fault. It is your fault. And again, I'm not sitting here advocating that it's not humans, like that human beings aren't at fault for, you know, whatever, their own personal choices. But at the same time, this is one of those things where – It's not how we respond to, you know, deaths from cigarettes. It's not how we respond to deaths from jewel pods. It's not how we respond to deaths from opiates. It's, you know, but it's how we respond to deaths from alcohol, which is it's the user's fault. The user didn't, you know, we didn't use the drug properly. And so, and then there's something wrong with them and they're sick and they need treatment and everyone else keep on drinking. So,
0: yeah, Mike and I had recorded a podcast, I don't know, several months ago, inspired by your appearance on Melissa Urban's podcast, Do The Thing, mm-hmm. because I listened to that and I was like, oh, you know something we don't ever talk about? The fact that we don't drink. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I know. Have, but I had to talk about no it because idea. it's so assumed. Like, it's not assumed by anybody else. I just, because we don't drink, it doesn't occur to me to
2: talk about. But anyway, I, I love
1: it, to- though, when people ask me if I want to go get a drink. <laughs> Don't you love
2: saying you don't drink?
1: I was just like, well, I don't drink. And they're like, wait, what? Why don't you drink? You know, it's because it, it, you, you address this in your book too. It's like, if I said, you know, I don't wear black jeans, nobody would be like, why don't what? you wear black jeans? Right. But it's like, you don't drink. And then it creates this whole saga that, ex, that they need the whole, they need the explanation of yeah. why I don't actually drink. Yeah,
0: I'd love yeah. to know from Holly, given that that was, was some of what you had talked about in that episode with Melissa. And then we shared our experience of sharing with people that we don't drink. What is it about sharing that you don't drink and your decision about like each person's individual decision to not drink why does it matter so much to other people our drinking status
2: oh i mean it's the same reason as like why i get really upset if my mom and i go to a pastry shop and she decides to have like a an egg white you know while i'm eating a chocolate <laughs> croissant i mean you just i think there's like that piece of I think we all have this collective confusion with it. I really do. I mean, I think that there is, when you are expected to use a drug that is a depressant and, and, you know, and causes anxiety and messes, I mean, does all these things to you and leads to hangovers and all sorts of crap. Like when you're like expected to use this drug and you're told you may or may not be an alcoholic, you'll only find out after years of using it, you know? And we have this like weird thing going on with it. We have, like, I just... I think like, I know that when people didn't drink, I felt threatened by it. I felt like, why? Like, or how do you do that? How could you just not drink tonight? Or how are you managing that much control? Or wait, aren't we going to have fun? It's just like, it brings up everyone. I mean, the the point is it brings up everybody's own person. It's like the answers are whatever is going on with that person and alcohol, you know, that's the answer. Whatever that person's relationship is with it, it's terrifying,
1: when yeah. did, when did you quit drinking of twenty twenty thirteen.
2: 2013, when did, April, April, 2013? What about you?
1: I think it was February. When did we go to Gabby's new year? Oh, May cause
2: miracles. Well, it wasn't, it was, no. a,
1: it
0: was a new year's Eve. It was, a, uh, it was new a year's micro version of your story. actually. No. Oh my God. I Wait, moved what to was her
1: New Year's Eve party in New York? And that was 20. So
0: funny. It was it, no, it was yeah, it was the year was, that
1: became 2012. It became 2012. So, okay, got it. it. Was February of 2012. Okay, and it was the last time I did, yeah, it was with Diane. We had,
2: and did you know she was sober? Gabby I mean, was
1: sober. No, I didn't, it was, I didn't quit because of Gabby. His it had nothing Gab- to do with it. it, it. Just,
2: oh, okay, I'm all I because, be because
1: people were drinking <laughs> at the party, and we just happened to be there. Like I didn't know. I didn't. I think that might have been the first time I actually met her, Gabby. Yeah, at Gabby. Yeah, yeah we Gabby. Not me. But it was a New Year's party at her place. <laughs> and that was. But then I quit afterwards from there. Yeah. Why? Like what why I- that night? it was it what it wasn't that night it was a month and a half later but that night so it was what happens with me when i get into these addictive patterns and be like cigarettes was it was the same way i quit cigarettes the same way i quit smoking weed and doing other drugs and then drinking alcohol and then other types of foods etc like i will be like i need to change this like there'll be something that my body tells me that i need to change what i'm doing and then it might take six months to a year to two years to really stop. Like with alcohol, it was about, it was about a, I would say a year. it took total to stop. I was like, I, you know what, when I wanted to quit smoking cigarettes I to stop buying cigarettes. Mm-hmm. And then I was bum for like a year and I became Mike, the bummer, you know, at college and afterwards. Mm. And then I worked for Philip Moore. So I got free cigarettes. So I didn't have to worry. But then I, you know, it's so, and with alcohol, it just like, it started to affect me in a way that I knew the life that I wanted to live being a drunk like i was was not going to get me to that <clears throat> platform and then when kate and i started traveling a lot in 2011 she didn't drink you know like she doesn't like kate has a, a beverage a year right like yeah and so when i'm with her i was like okay well i don't need to actually to drink with her and this kind of leads me into what my next question is for you and then i had a party we went to gabby's party and on the way home i had like three or four glasses of champagne probably that night. I was getting so irritated at Kate as we're walking home from Gabby's apartment to where we were staying. And Kate was just asking me basic questions at like one o'clock in the morning. Like, Mm -hmm. it's not like like we we weren't in a fight or anything, but I knew my body. I was getting just so irritated. Like, it was just getting like mad at her at some reason. So then I was like, okay, you know, it just, I was like, when I woke up the next morning, I was like, that's weird. You know, it was just like, that's completely not nice. And then I just, I, we came home and it was around, I think it was February at a party at your mom's house. And then we have a friend of ours that her and I like to drink champagne together and we have a great time. And it's really exciting. And not present tense. Yeah. Not not now, (laughs) but it was like, then we still have a great time now, even though we don't drink champagne. (laughs) But it was, and I just was like, you know what? I think, and I, I woke up with like a little hangover. I was like, I think I'm done. Like like, I don't need this anymore because it's like where I wanted to go in life. I know me drinking wasn't going to get me there because I already tried that out for 14 years and it was fucking fun. Right. But like it it wasn't where I wanted to go. Yeah. That's why. That's how it happened. That's pretty amazing. Oh yeah. My question is for you is, uh, well, she asked me a question, so I gave no, her a moment you, to pause good. to see if she wanted to follow up, but okay, she didn't. So now I'll. No,
2: I it. know. I was I, well, I was taking it in because I wanted I didn't want to say that's like spontaneous recovery, but that's one of those things. that's just like outside again. It's another thing that's outside the norm, which is that's a thing. People just wake up and decide I'm done, and they they're done. And for me, I had to put a lot of effort into quitting. It was covering up a lot of pain. And it was a it was a huge coping mechanism and social mechanism and, and all sorts of different things in my life. And it was, it took a, I mean, it, and I'm not saying, I'm not assuming it didn't take a lot for you, but I think there's so many different stories to how people come to quitting and it's...
1: I, honestly, I think it was like four years is when I like made that decision. Of working towards that? Yeah, mm-hmm. to when I f- officially did.
0: And for you, yeah. Holly, it was not was it a
2: year, nine months? Mu- it was six, six months from, I think like, it's fair to say that I went to Esalen in two, in January, 2012. So we were a little simpatico there. And like, that was where I had my, it was my, I think it was my 32nd birthday. And uh, I went and do you know who James Barraz is? He's just like, he owns, Do you know, spirit rock he's like part of those like old, like those 60, 70 year old, like Berkeley hippies. Like he's just, so anyways, he was teaching a meditation course and I was in a relationship with the CEO of my company. I was like, I was fucked up. Oh my God. I don't know. Can I say that word? Okay. Sorry. And I went to Esalen to try and save my life and I meditated for a weekend. And it was the first time I had ever meditated. And I think once you have that experience of just awareness that you can't undo it, you can't unsee it. And I, it haunted me. And I had a friend literally a week later, cause I was still riding that high. We were out, we were drunk. And she was just like, this isn't your life. Like I see a totally different life for you. I know. Isn't that crazy? And she said, but that's what she said. She was just like, I, I, and she's not to date one of my friends still. She was just somebody I had known for years and she was visiting with a bunch of my girlfriends and she was just like, I just see you doing so much more than this. And I, I had, I always had that. Like when I read Eat, Pray, Love, I was like, I know there is more to this. And I think that never left me after Esalen. And I tried to go back to it. And in the summer that year, I told one of my friends, I was just like, if I don't stop drinking when we get home, I need an intervention. And she didn't listen to me. And then it was just, there was just, I was dying and I was, that was it. And I was, it's hard to go back and look at it and think I had any sort of awareness or any realization, that there's this budding realization that just takes time to digest, metabolize and do something with. And that's what I think happened in 2012.
1: Mm-hmm. Hmm. I know you want to talk about the business. I just have one more yeah. question. What are your ongoing, maybe it's changed since it's been almost. It'll be eight, eight years. years. Yeah like, let's say those first couple of years, like, how do you deal with not going for like the struggles, right? There's a lot of, like, there's a lot of things we've done really well when we're drunk. Yeah. What have you done to do those things really well when you're sober? Like what's the, I mean, for example, like one of the things was like being with Kate on an intimate level. Yeah. I did so much of that when I was drunk about that. And then like doing that sober was a completely different world for me for a long time. And I know there's a lot of things that happen in those ways, like family yeah. events, like parties. So it's like, how do you find your center, find yourself in those moments? Cause I know that's evolved in eight years, but like probably, you know, if you take back a couple of years ago,
2: I think that was the exciting part of it. I think that's what it made it like actually rich was having to show up places and to be sober I think going out, like that first night I stopped drinking, I went to a company party and it was just like, let's see how this goes. And I went to Italy three months sober to Sicily of all places after I'd been obsessed with like Sicilian wines forever. And I went with drinking people and I was sober the whole time. And I, you know, and the first time I had sex over and all of those things, I think it was just like, I think that is the real, those are the realest experiences I've ever had in my life. And I love them. Like, that's what I have loved the most about this is that I get to see who I am in situations where I never allowed myself. I mean, dancing sober, done it, terrible dancer, but survived and I enjoy it. Like I dance now, like I'll think I'm in front of my office and I'll like get up in front of them and I'll be like, I, I just... It's like, we are also afraid of being ourselves and we do all of these things so that people don't find out who we are and they don't see how insecure or how messy or how awkward or how, and I am very awkward and I am, you know, my energy is super intense and there's all sorts of things. I'm I'm an angry person sometimes with a lot of passion and I can't mask that. I have to manage that and be that. And I think, the existence of allowing myself to figure out life without trying to use, you know, some pretty harsh chemicals to manage it. Like having to just use breath or meditation or words or, you know, it's just, it's been a trip and it feels good. It feels terrible and it feels hard and it mostly though feels good. No, it's <laughs> <laughs> great. Was, okay. okay.
0: So we don't have a lot of time left. So I just, I do want to ask you, not everybody gets sober and recreates their life and then decides to create a business about it.
2: So, <laughs> it's like, I mean, that's not. Don't do it. No, it's stupid. I mean, it's this woman wrote me this. Well, okay, anyways, finish asking your question. Oh, well, yeah. no, I mean, my only my
0: question was, and then I actually am curious about what the woman wrote you. Um, yeah, I can't tell you. The, the answer might be short to this question. So, You know, we we run an online educational company. Yeah. Right. And that's sort of what you do also. I don't know if you could say it that way. Sure.
2: Yeah. But like
0: same. Why did you decide to go out and fundraise and what in you knew to go big versus like duct taping the internet together the way we have?
2: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, no, that's such a good question. I couldn't not, I think I do watch the crown. I know it's such a weird question. We have, we okay. have.
1: Not the whole thing, but enough of it to, it was too slow for us for a long time.
2: What? Oh my I God. We could go back could go to, back to back. it now. Yeah. But I think when I understood her so well, because I understand duty and mm-hmm. I think that that is the only thing that i can say that makes any sense and i had a strong sense of duty to this and i would never <laughs> i mean i like don't want to do this half the time it's very true and to build like a recovery company when you're in recovery i mean the shit that i've gotten for creating something outside of i i'm a charlotte and i'm a snake oil salesman i'm a Liar, I'm a cheat. I got the letter I got this week, and that's what I was gonna say. This woman, like, I posted, and you saw this on Instagram. I just said, like, I heard the girl from the girl, the woman that runs, oh god, what is it? Wolf, I can't think of the name. The Wild Feminist Company. Oh, Wolf, why can't I think of that? <laughs> wild Wolf, no, no, um, I Wild Fang, that. thank you. Okay, <laughs> so Wild Fang, um, and I she was just talking about how much we mask over how hard it is to be a CEO and a VC back company and all this stuff. And, and I'll answer the big, the go big thing too, in a second. But she was just like, you don't hear the parts, you hear the glamor side, but you don't hear the parts where you've almost run out of money. Well, we've almost run out of money. You don't hear the parts where your whole idea failed. You don't hear the parts about like, you hear the, like you get the highlight reel of this. And I don't know why I've never applied this logic to being a CEO of of a company or being a CEO of a venture back company either way. But I had, I can apply that to every other area of my life, but I had never thought, Oh my God, people in my situation are probably going through the same hell I am. And I think it was the first time I'd heard this. So then I went on to Instagram immediately and was like, this is hard. And like, I struggle. And And then this woman posted a comment and was like, you're going to drink again. You need to go to rehab immediately and like take 30 days off now. (laughs) And then I, and then I like clap back and I never do that. And then some guy comes and piles on and he's like, Holly, your defensiveness shows that, you know, she's right. And you owe her an explanation for why you aren't taking care of yourself. And I was like, I mean, the first part was where the fuck did I say I wasn't taking care of myself? I meditated for thirty minutes today, and like, yeah. are like taking care of yourself and feeling stressed out and doing hard things are totally like those are not. The same thing we can be doing whatever we can in our power to take care of ourselves and still not be taking care of ourselves. And by the way, feel a lot of shame about that, especially if we're leading a wellness company. And so there's that piece of it. And then she followed up and sent an email and to my employees, basically like to people that are in our our inbox and said the same thing that I am about to drink again and that I am like, it's dangerous what I'm doing. And I I should be able to figure out with the $16 million we raised, how to take care of myself. And, And it was just like one of those things. So then on top of this also is this part of like, it's not just, you know, like the recovery and starting the company. It's also that you have people that literally tell you that you're going to drink again for doing what you do. And that like, you have this additional threat of your sobriety could crumble under, which I don't buy into, but it is a thing. So anyway, the whole point is the reason I went big with this is because I couldn't have done it any other way. I just could not see another way through of what I wanted to do and what I need, what I felt I was supposed to do. I had a a lunch with my friend, Julie Santiago early in this, who we were both like trying to figure out like how to run our businesses. And I told her, I want to help millions of people. And it like, and like the world is not enough and not because, you know, of any sort of thing other than that's just how it feels right to me. And she was like, Oh my God, we're so different. I want to help like 30 people a year. And like, it was just like, I mean, I don't think she said that exactly, but we just had totally, hers was intimate. Mine was like, I want to break the wheel. And so that is how I ended up doing this. So beautiful.
0: Thank Mm. you so much. I mean, (sighs) I texted you, I said, this book has, as a non-drinker, like this book was really revelatory for me because it just, A, gave me so much compassion for humanity and people struggle with substance. Yeah, right. Which has never been my struggle, but I related to 99.9% of the rest of the book and also just like to see how sick our culture is around alcohol. Like I knew, you know, I come from the lineage of alcoholics, so I got it. But like there was, there is a gift in this book that is so much deeper. So I just really want everyone listening to go get yourself a copy of Quit Like a Woman. It will change your life and you need it. We all do. Our whole culture really needs this message. And so thank you for listening to the call, even though 50% of the time or more, you don't want to, because that's how it feels when you're listening to the call.
2: It's true. It's just terrible. I'm <laughs> <And> wonderful. <laughs> terrible, wonderful. <laughs> um,
0: is there anything else that you want to leave our listeners with?
2: No, but I think you both are great. And this has been wonderful. It's really nice seeing your faces and it feels like, you know, a big like sober circle of hugs and totally entrepreneurship.
0: We are are on your team. I'm so excited for this book to get out into the world. And I would like to know where people should go find you.
2: Yeah, you can find our, you can find our company that helps people get sober at jointempest.com. Or you can find the book on quitlikeawoman.com. Or you can find me on Instagram where my handle is Holly, H-O-L-O-Y. And that's typically where I do most of my writing these days.
0: It's so good. You're such a good writer. I want to have you back and talk about writing before I'm going to let you go. How did you like what Holly was just available?
2: No, some of my investors were like early Facebook folks. Oh, I
0: was like, when you said Holly, I was like, what is happening right now? No,
2: No, that was... Yeah, I get like, I don't know, probably, first of all, I'm dog. If you go to like what I'm tagged in, it's all dog photos. There are so many dogs named Dolly. And then also I get messages almost every day from people that are like, yo, give me your name. Like, I want your name. Like, it's just so funny. And I'm just, anyway, yeah, I I, honestly, I have no idea how I I did other than I got lucky and I knew someone. But that's not how it
1: works. 20 million bucks, you can have it. That's right. Well, it's so
0: elegant, and I love it. Yeah, it's great. I love it. Oh, thank you. You're
2: thank amazing. Thank you. I love you both. Have a good day. You. Bye bye. Thanks for having me.
0: You're savvy enough to know that if you make optimal use of your precious time and energy, achieving your business dreams in 2020 will be inevitable. I am creating a brand new course called "Make Time for Business." Do the things that make money so you can do less. And you can get it absolutely free for a limited time. So head over to maketimeforbusiness.com. Again, that's maketimeforbusiness.com and get yourself on the wait list so you can be the first to know when this course becomes available for free. See you there.